Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. And we are here. It's the week. Help me out, Carson. I didn't look before I pushed record. Oh, what no. Week is it? 26th. 26th and that's all we September? need to know. Yeah, because there is no Supreme oh. Court. So it's yes. only 26. There's no sour cream this only week. Only one day matters. It's a regular taco. It's, it's just, not supreme. It, it is. <laughs> it is a non-supreme taco. It's so, just a plain. It's oh. just a plain cheese quesadilla today. That's <laughs> all we got. There's no supreme to this week. There's no supreme this I week. I know. I kind of feel... Was it Was it something we should be happy about? I, you know, is it, it's kind of a buzzkill. I mean... No news is good news, so you got that's that. That's true. That's true. And don't, I mean, don't everyone just tune out, because the Court of Appeals is worth listening to. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are, there's two published opinions from the Court of Appeals this week. Not one, but two. Two. And two. maybe that's, maybe they knew. Okay, that's we're going to swap in. We're going to we're gonna have a couple of things that can be cited to. Yeah. And they're worth listening to. They're, they're still valuable, plus we're here. But yeah, we're people, too. Yes, we're we are. <laughs> we are people, too. It's a very fall summer day. It is a fall summer day. Let's see. Fall summer. It is. It's gonna get hot this week. Yeah, it's right? gonna be very hot. Like I'm seeing like 90s. I couldn't believe yesterday. It's that time of the year where um, you get ready to go to bed, and your house has the AC running, mm-hmm. you know, or or you're cooking. So mm-hmm. those are your two options okay. if you're one of those people. So only two. You options. hear the go ahead. A- yeah. You hear the AC running, or you're you're cooking in your house, uh-huh. and then you wake up if you're like me, and you turn the fan on. You've had the fan on all night, and you wake mm-hmm. up, and it's like 50 degrees, oh. and you know your bedroom and you're like wow these temperature changes are killing me because we're getting to that time where it's like 50 overnight oh, 40 overnight that's a big and then spread. you wake up and it's it's, it's 90. 90 yeah and that's literally what it's been the last couple of days it is chilly in the mornings and then you just get absolutely roasted in the afternoons but good times here there's a football game east I, I haven't heard anything about it. Okay, really. well, perfect. I, I mean, I guess I, the rumor is that, yeah, that, that there there's will a be... number two team in the nation coming to Memorial Stadium. Division two, or is that? No, no, oh, no, 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 no. An actual di- okay. Division one. Oh, surprising. So, and then I haven't heard anything about it. Okay, well. I haven't heard anything about it. And then uh, I guess uh, the guy from Barstool, the Dave Portnoy guy. Oh yes, he's Let's... selling T-shirts to say, say "Make Nebraska Mediocre Again." Which I have from a certain county in Nebraska as a campaign slogan for a while ago, but I won't get into that. Okay. Well, yeah. I actually don't mind that. I would love to be mediocre again. Six, six and six? six? Die for it. <laughs> die for six and six. Sign me up. This isn't a sports podcast. What are we talking about? <laughs> well, All there's right. no ex parte summary. So well, that's we... true. Ex parte. Nothing. No parte. No parte. No parte, no parte this week. So no let's parte. go right into the Court of Appeals. First one's for you. Carson, go right ahead. All righty. And we start off with Macy v. Macy. And I want to give a quick shout out to a dear friend of mine and another attorney. Many of you probably know her as she was a former uh, bar so state bar association president, Marsha Fangmeyer. Oh, yes. Uh, she, you know, was, was very... Um, very direct in telling me, you know, Carson, I know you guys have this podcast. I appreciate listening to it, but I want you to pay special attention to this opinion this week. And if you have it, you know, you, you better, you better perk up. So that tells me everybody else better perk up, you know, perk up Ms. Fangmeyer. She knows what she's talking about. And so Macy versus Macy, uh, here we have an appeal from the district court of Scott's bluff County. And this is an appeal from a dissolution of marriage and um, 
dealing with a few issues in regards to custody, property classification, division, and alimony. And again, I'm not going to get into the weeds and the facts here, but basically what we have is that a couple was married. Um, the husband was in the U.S. Navy. They traveled around a lot. Uh, eventually, he ends up in California, and the wife ends up back in Nebraska. At that point in time, they separate. He is providing informal support in the form of money and things like that. They purchase a house together even though they're separated in nebraska and eventually that results in the uh, dissolution of marriage that we have today so that started in in 2020 and the big issue on appeal and again i am not going to hide the ball here the reason that this opinion is is so valuable is because of the fact that uh, the husband had left the military and was honorably discharged in 2021 after 13 years of service in the military. And what happens here is that uh, because he was in the military so long, he had uh, acquired a substantial amount of uh, military pension. And so even though that had not uh, vested because he had not reached the 20-year mark uh, for military pension, um, that amount of money was sitting there. There's a, a pretty sizable amount of money sitting there. And so there was actually, interestingly enough, another attorney who came in and testified about uh, classifications of military pensions, uh, how you go about dividing those assets, what you do with those assets, what it would take for the husband to uh, be able to actually secure that pension as far as he could go back into a government job since he'd been there for 13 years and basically work that 10 years or, or seven years again in either a military job or another government job and could secure that pension in the future. And so there was a ton of testimony in regards to uh, that issue. And the district court basically um, dealt with the disposable military retirement by saying that uh, one of two things. One, if you ever are able to draw out this retirement account and you know take it in either a lump sum or some form of that, your wife is entitled to half of that amount. And then the second thing that the uh, district court did was said, if you uh, ever um, go back to work in a government job or a military job, you are required to give a percentage of that retirement to your wife. You're required to, to notify her. And then there was a calculation based on the 13 and a half years of service and that fraction um, that would then designate how much of the money the wife was going to be entitled to. And so on appeal, we have uh, various issues about classifying marital debt, which there actually is, and, and maybe I did hide the ball on that piece. There is an interesting piece here about classifying the student loans of the wife as marital debt uh, because she had acquired those uh, while they were married, while the husband was the only one working, and then uh, it went towards uh, marital benefit. And so I guess that piece was a little bit interesting just because student loans are kind of one of those things that can end up being the responsibility of the individual rather than marital property. But anyway, the Court of Appeals goes through all of the other issues in regards to that marital property, in regards to a piece of per personal property, uh, a motorcycle, um, and then a classification of offense as uh, property that was um, to the, the wife. They affirm all of those issues, and then eventually uh, we come to the entire issue about the uh, retirement account and the 
um, conditional judgment, basically is how the, the Court of Appeals uh, talks about it, the conditional judgment on the retirement. And the the thing that really stuck out to me on this and, and something that I uh, found very, very interesting in this opinion was the fact that the court talks about how the district court was trying to fashion uh, language that could deal with both the disposable military pay uh, should he um, re-enter the military and then potential retirement pay if there was um, another government system that would give him credit for the time served. And basically uh, what the Court of Appeals does here, which again is something that I haven't seen very much, uh, but they they reverse what the... Um, what the or I should say vacate what the district court found in regards to um, what would happen if the husband re-entered civil service or a government job that would allow him to have his pension and put in the exact language that they want to see in that order and so here they're remanding it vacating it and saying replace this section with this exact language and there's basically a paragraph here that says this is what the person should be entitled to if this happens um, with the military pension and re-entering civil service. And so talk about a law chunk. You know, John talks all the time about great law chunks. This is a law chunk that if you are dealing with military pensions, military retirements, anything like that where you it is not vested, you don't have that 20 years, this is going to be a law chunk that you're going to want to doctor a little bit as far as the math and are probably going to want to put in your orders because this is something that again the court of appeals is saying this is what we want to see and we're sticking it in the district court order and so um, again just an interesting piece with uh, that that law chunk and then the discussion about what happens with these pensions when they haven't actually vested um, but yet can be calculated and there is an amount of money there and so um, they affirm in part affirm in part as uh, to a modification with a, a calculation and then uh, reverse and vacate uh, the paragraph of that uh, one section of the order um, and send it back to the district court to deal with that. But again, I do agree with Ms. Fangmeyer, an opinion that if you are practicing in the family law world, probably need to take a look at. Yes. Thanks, Marsha. Thank you, Marsha. For everything. <laughs> Always. Always and forever. All right, State v. Fernando, uh, the defendant here was convicted at a bench trial for two counts of intentional child abuse and one count of accessory to first-degree sexual assault of a child. This was the mom. The defendant was the mom of a 11-year-old girl. Um, it started when she was in fifth grade and 11, year, 11 years old. She had a uh, not a biological father but a stepdad that she called dad uh, that lived in the home who sexually assaulted her on numerous occasions uh, too many to count uh, horrible facts here um, the main uh, you know portion of this decision is the after the ultimate conviction she appealed for insufficiency of evidence and uh, basically said that um, Oh, she was sentenced to two to three years on the intentional child abuse and 10 to 14 um, on the accessory to sexual assault of a child. So 10 to 14 years on that. Um, and then for purposes of this opinion, it's important to note that on the two to three years for the intentional child abuse, she was given 12 months post-release supervision. That'll come up later. So 
there is a, a deep dive into section 28-707 um, that I won't get into here, but it basically has to do with the state of mind distinctions between negligence and intentional um, you know, crimes that we might have. So what is a crime of omission and whether negligence, you know, purposeful negligence, which, you know, you start using words like this, they start losing their meaning to a certain degree. But if you say purposeful negligence, a lawyer might say that we might have it in the statute and it might be able to be defined. Uh, let's leave the rest of the discussion to the philosophy guys. But for our purposes here, um, intentional negligence is, is, you know, you intentionally omit to do something. You intentionally omit to remove the child from a harmful situation. If you were to do that, that is enough of a, uh, of an act for you to be convicted of this intentional child abuse and accessory to the uh, sexual assault of a child. So they affirm, the court affirms uh, the conviction based on sufficiency of the evidence and um, also, you know, the uh, totality of the convictions and the sentence. So those are uh, the affirming parts of the opinion. And then uh, there's some good discussion on the state of mind. So if you have any issues, even, you know, juvenile court stuff or other things that might involve state of mind distinctions, there's a good portion of this opinion that deals with those state of mind distinctions. And you can, and as far as I can tell, you know, for relatively recent uh, history that I've been reviewing these things, this is kind of the first deep dive I've seen into these state of mind kind of distinctions. So if you have that, go take a look at that. However, the... Um, Court of Appeals here did find plain error. If you have a 3A conviction and a 2A conviction, the statute says whether it's concurrent or consecutive, you can't do post-release supervision. So they struck the 12 months post-release supervision for the defendant here, and otherwise uh, they affirmed. So the post-release supervision has some uh, pretty quirky rules uh, about when it can be applied and when it can't. And in this situation, because she was convicted of both the 3A and the 2A, uh, she couldn't receive any post-release supervision. That's it. That's it? Yes. Okay. Next case we come to is State v. Bradbury, and this is an appeal from a jury conviction of possession of a controlled substance, and then um, an appeal basically from uh, that, and then the district court's denying of a motion to suppress. And on appeal... Uh, the big issue is this motion to suppress, and the reason there's an issue on a motion to suppress is because uh, the underlying case stemmed from a a undercover uh, buy of methamphetamine in Lincoln, um, where the undercover officer uh, gets drugs from a drug dealer, then follows that person back to a residence with a warrant. They issue that warrant. At that point in time, they take two individuals with uh, warrants into custody, and uh, Bradbury is at the house at that point in time. So law enforcement goes into the house, goes and arrests the other two individuals. Apparently, Bradbury basically walks by all of the officers and just uh, goes and hangs out in the uh, parking lot of this uh, apartment complex. And the interesting piece there is that she's not under arrest. No one questions her. Uh, she's just kind of hanging out, uh, waiting in the parking lot to kind of see what happens. At that point in time, 
law enforcement approach her and uh, ask if they can search other parts of the house to look for large, large quantities of methamphetamine, which they believe that they will be able to find uh, because of the fact that this individual who they had the warrant for was a large drug dealer. At that point, Brandon Bradbury takes them back into the house, and at some point they end up in her bedroom and are asking, you know, where could quantities of methamphetamines be found here? Are there any illicit substances? And uh, Bradbury answers these questions and says, hey, you know, there's a box here. Um, there they find a meth pipe, and that has residue in it, and that's the uh, basis for the underlying charge. And so the issue on the motion to suppress and the issue on appeal is basically if uh, Bradbury was in some kind of custody that would have required being advised of her constitutional rights, um, and therefore, you know, should all the evidence have been suppressed, both statements and the physical evidence, at the time of trial. And the court, the district court, found uh, that there was no um, custodial arrest here. There was no uh, threat of not being able to go. They talked about the fact that when she walked out of the house, everyone had their guns drawn, but then she chose to stay around the residence. She could have just left at that point in time. No one was trying to keep her there. And then once she went back inside, everyone had put their guns away. She was walking around the house freely, and there was no reason uh, that she should have uh, thought that she was uh, not free to go. And a reasonable person in that uh, situation uh, would have not perceived that they were in custody. And so the district court found that the uh, motion to suppress shouldn't have been granted. Then the kind of interesting quirk here is that um, during the jury trial, the defense attorney objects when uh, the officer is testifying about statements that were made by Bradbury um, about uh, what, where the drugs were, other things that had happened or gone on in the home, and essentially all the statements that happened when they were in her bedroom. And so there was a, an objection to that and then a running objection. But what didn't happen was there was never an objection to the actual evidence that came as a result of that search and seizure. So there was not an objection to the meth pipe. There was not a, an objection to any of the other evidence that came in. And so, therefore, all of those objections were waived. Um, and because they weren't preserved for appeal, the Court of Appeals did not address any kind of um, evidentiary issue on letting that evidence come in. And so uh, they affirmed on that basis. Uh, then there was a couple other appeals based on essentially sufficiency of evidence and then um, her recanting uh, certain testimony at a later date. Um, and both of those were also affirmed. Guernsey v. Guernsey. This is a Lincoln County District Court case. It's a divorce. Or excuse me. Uh, yes, it is a dissolution of marriage case. The issues for the appeal, which is why I was hesitant, I wasn't sure whether it was a modification or whether it was a straight divorce because I couldn't remember. But then I looked down and saw it was a dissolution of marriage case. I'm allowed to do that, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I, mean, I uh, never look down, but this isn't this is an open book exam that I'm on. There's no. Yeah, you can have your book. Okay, thank you. Because sometimes you'll hear papers rustling and things like that. Open note exam. Open outline. You open can outline? have your outline. Outline, yeah. Oh, this but is it just has great. to be your own outline. This is my you own You have to outline. have done your own work. I never stole it from anybody else. This is mine, um, except, you know, I'm basically reading what somebody else wrote. Well, that's true. <laughs> so it's uh, my version of somebody else. Regardless, the fact of Guernsey v. Guernsey is that it's a dissolution of marriage case, and it's a dissolution of marriage appeal. The uh, issues on appeal are custody, both legal custody and physical custody. And uh, another, you know, the main area of discussion here is uh, the denial by the district court of in-camera, um, you know, in-chambers 
testimony of the child. The child was 12 years old at the time. That was the only one they were looking at. Well, they were looking at the older two, but uh, for some reason they didn't do the other one. But the 12-year-old, they did not permit to testify. So they did, the trial was split up during a number of days, and there were pretrial motions made and then denied, and then there was a pretrial motion for the child to testify in camera on a second day uh, after it was previously denied for not being timely filed. And then they file the motion for in-camera testimony of the 12-year-old, and the uh, opposing party, which would be mother in this case, attached a affidavit, I think it was her own affidavit, I'm not 100% on that, but her own affidavit, which had a letter from a therapist that was attached to the affidavit, basically saying this child has anxiety disorder, absolutely does not want to be put in the middle of these parents and uh, doesn't have a position to testify and it would be bad if we made this and forced this child to testify uh, in these situation. You know, I'm not going to editorialize, but anyway, um, that that's where they were at. And the district court said they have anxiety disorder, um, even though he's 12 and, and very able to articulate things and very able to ask questions and we might be able to talk about it and make it, you know, kind of manageable uh, in chambers. We're not going to do that. And the district or the court of appeals here said that was, there was no uh, abuse of discretion. Uh, The 12 year old didn't have any desire to testify and the anxiety disorder kind of mitigated the forcing the 12 year old to testify kind of situation. So the court here, if you have a situation where there is a 12 year old or somewhere around there who might have to testify, You'll want to look at this to see, you know, what you need to argue in order for one way or the other about whether the child has to testify or not. If the child doesn't want to testify and has no desire to testify, um, that might be important um, regarding this, whether one parent's making the other child testify or not. Um, Bad situation, but that, you know, sometimes it's necessary in order to get certain facts in. What's interesting to me is that the therapist letter just came in, and we're not talking about that, but the therapist letter. Uh, that was attached to this other affidavit that was obviously used to establish a fact that he had an anxiety disorder. Maybe nobody disagreed, so it isn't that big a deal, but that to me was uh, an issue here. So that's one of the main issues. Also, there's some good discussion, I think, about facts that might be important for legal custody um, and for legal, uh, you know, joint legal custody as opposed to giving legal custody for one parent or the other. There's vaccination talk, there's religion talk, there's moral talk, and there's some guidance uh, from the uh, Court of Appeals here on whether the person exercising those decisions for the children in a legal custodial kind of situation are using the sound uh, information based on medical professionals and other things like that. If they're and and that to me would be some quills, um, or excuse me, some arrows for your quill. Is that the right yeah, way to arrows say for your quill. Arrows yeah. for your quill. If you're trying to argue that uh, you know we should follow medical advice in something in order to benefit your client and and do what and ultimately benefit the child or whatever, um, you know those would be the arguments that you would want to make. Is that we're following medical professionals and these are the medical professionals we have and that's how we should move forward. So. Ultimately, the legal and physical custody determinations were affirmed, as well as the uh, not forcing the 12-year-old uh, in this situation to testify, and they found no abuse of discretion uh, for the legal and physical custody being granted to mom in this situation. But uh, an interesting opinion, um, because it is a lot of fact-heavy stuff in here. Well, and just in the interest of saving you, and since we, we do we do these first run, it's a quiver. 
I like Quill, too. Oh, I did say thank you for saving me. You're welcome. Should I edit this out and make no, me sound smarter? I like that. <laughs> no. I should have saved you at the time if I was truly good at this. We're but... not supposed to make mistakes. No. A quiver for your arrow. A quill for your quill. pen. Yeah, but yeah. Quill's a We're pen. We're lawyers. We don't shoot arrows. We use quills. It's Friday afternoon. It's very fancy, yeah. I didn't get any Supreme Court decisions to talk about this week, so... That's true. I'm going to say quill. Quiver. Quill. Quivers. Quivers. Quail. I'm quivering. What are some other good Scrabble words we could put in there? <laughs> None. <laughs> All right. Final opinion. Let's jump to it. Uh, Prince versus Walmart Associates. And this is an appeal from an order of the Workers' Compensation Court dismissing a claim for workers' compensation benefits. And the big issue on appeal is whether or not the worker had failed is whether or not the worker had timely notified her employer. And so basically what happened here is that uh, Prince was uh, washing the bakery floor of the Walmart in Omaha and uh, she slipped and fell. Uh, when she fell to the ground, her uh, left leg twisted and she felt a pain. Um, she basically tries to deal with it on her own. Uh, she's struggling every single day at work. And then finally, uh, she works and continues to work. And then she uh, has a meeting with uh, the operations manager at Walmart, observing her uh, limping and then basically asks what happens. And at that point in time, uh, is when Prince discloses that, hey, I twisted my leg. And so uh, the injury happens in January of 2021, and the actual report or filing happens on March 29th of 2021. At that point in time, Walmart says, hey, go see the doctor. Doctor says, oh, you have a hamstring injury. Um, but eventually there's an MRI conducted that says, whoa, you need a total joint uh, replacement of your left hip. And so that eventually happens. Uh, Prince eventually files a petition uh, for uh, workers' compensation benefits, and the workers' compensation court denies uh, finding that she uh, did not, um, that she did incur the injury while working at Walmart, but that she did not uh, properly notify, notify Walmart under the of the uh, particular um injury and she failed to give notice as soon as practicable which i'm guessing this as soon as uh practical practicable practicable save me practicable part no it's practical pra as what? soon as you can yeah just as soon as you can <laughs> but that phrase apparently is very important in workers compensation because is, I, yeah. I see that one a lot so yep. if she if she had uh done that and basically what the Court of Appeals finds is that based on the evidence, it seemed uh, that she did not report her, her injury uh, for more than two months. And had she not been contacted by the Walmart uh, individual, the the supervisor, oper, oper, operations supervisor, she may have never uh, even reported this injury. And so they found that she had indeed failed uh, to report this injury as soon as uh, practicable. And because she, nice job. she had failed to do that, uh, she um, was not entitled to benefits. And therefore, uh, the Court of Appeals affirmed the Workers' Compensation Court. Man, that was rough. Hey, we did wow. it. Wow. You know the work comp stuff. We're not. We're we're, we're not supposed to. It's this. incredible that we get through the court or the, the court of appeals, the court of appeals, and the Supreme Court opinions every week. Because wow, I think my brain's just shutting down on this Friday. It's given up on me. It's done. We've had too much. You know what they're gonna do to us next week, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, we're gonna get a just an absolute doozy. Yeah. Which I don't know why I would mind. I've been you know cranking out a hundred page opinions for the last <laughs> couple of weeks. Would you? I mean, do you think that'll be hard on you though? I, uh, do you think you'll be able to adjust back into the swing of things? I, I would have there be some trouble for me. I've been so blessed uh, by not having any opinions for I mean, several weeks now. There is part of me. Again, we don't have a, a video portion of this, but. John is uh, one of these individuals who loves to print every opinion, which I I do oftentimes enjoy doing that as well. But if I would have printed the Supreme Court opinions over the last couple of weeks, I I don't know. I think our printer would have just shut down. I I, might have, you know, killed at least a small forest somewhere. There's something about the, uh, the paper. Yeah, I don't know. a I, paper I, and a quill. That's all a lawyer needs. That's all a good lawyer needs is a, a paper quiv, and a quill. A quiver. A, quiver. a practicable lawyer will have a quiver, a quill. A quiver of quills. A quiver of quills and a paper. See what we did there? That was great. Wow, we, we recovered. Hey, this is uh, Point to Law Review brought to you by Anderson Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Offices in Holdridge, Minden, and Kearney. Uh, that's another week, gang. It is another great week. I hope anybody who does go to the tiny little football game in eastern nebraska has a good time have a runza for john and i maybe yeah. a piece of valentino's pizza is chick-fil-a there i heard that was was that rumor in the stadium that's what i heard that can't be real really uh, that's what i thought I okay heard. well if there is chick-fil-a in the stadium someone tweet at us <laughs> and let us know because i would love to know if there is actually chick-fil-a in the stadium right. i mean i guess we could go to lincoln and go to a game ourselves and figure it out but huh, here not, we are not this week there isn't anything so All right. uh, Talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.